Amen. Let's remain standing as we come now to the preaching passage this morning. This is James chapter 2. If you would turn there in your Bibles, James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. James 2, 1 through 13. Hear God's word for us this morning. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothes also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law, but fails in one point, has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. This is God's word for us this morning. Amen. Let's take our seats. James, uh, the brother of the Lord Jesus, is writing his letter to Christians who have been dispersed uh, throughout the world at the time, probably Jewish Christians. They are separated. They're separated from each other. They're separated from what they know best. And many of us are feeling a similar kind of separation today. We feel dispersed. And so this book of James is especially relevant as we've been discovering over the last uh, few weeks. He began by talking about the testing that comes to those who are under such trials of dispersion. And we saw how he uh, instructed those Christians the way to respond to times of testing of our faith is to do so with joy, to count it all joy. And uh, when we find that hard, to ask God for the wisdom to know how uh, to count it all joy. And then uh, last week, we are looking at another challenge that often comes when we're, we're under a time of testing, and that is to the very nature of the faith. It's easy to become those who perhaps are putting on a good show of faking it a little bit. And so he described how real, genuine faith is the faith that truly hears God's word and has the word then deeply implanted like a seed into the heart. 
And because of that, not only hears, uh, but also puts it into practice. Not only hearing the word, but also doing the word. Well, this morning we come to another uh, related uh, factor connected to uh, time of testing. And it's what James calls partiality. That's not a word we often use anymore. And we'll have to see what James means by that. Obviously, the word partiality in English means uh, preference for a certain party or group or faction. Factionalism. Division. Again, we see a lot of that today in our country and around the world. And we'll look and see what James is teaching here about partiality. What he's saying is, don't show partiality. And then he'll explain that. And then he says, well, if you do show partiality, here's what will happen. So first of all, don't show partiality. And this is from verses 1 through to 7 in your Bibles. And he begins in verse 1 with establishing the principle of it all. He says, my brothers, remember my brothers and sisters, this is the family of God. When the Bible says brothers in this way, it's not being gender specific. My, my brothers and sisters, the family, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So there they are having to hold on to faith. It's a difficult time. And they're holding on with all their strength. As you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. Show no partiality. The word partiality has in the original the sense of accepting by the face. It's about making a distinction based upon how people appear, what they're like on the outside. And we'll see as we go through it what this means here in practicality as James explains. He says, show no partiality. Here's the principle of the whole thing. So you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Christ of glory, the Lord of glory. Every time we show partiality, when we prefer someone because they're more wealthy or look better, we are losing sight of the Christ of glory. When society becomes more factionalized, more divided, it's because we're losing sight of the Christ of glory. We humans are glory seekers. We are like heat seeking missiles, seeking glory. And when we lose sight of the Christ of glory, we become enamored and fascinated by how people appear. But the issue is not how great people are, the issue is how glorious. Jesus is. And that's the principle of the whole thing. To have a vision for the Christ of glory. But James is always very practical. And so he uh, then moves to the practicality of it. 
And uh, he then, verses uh, 2 to 4, advances a, um, uh, a test case, a scenario. For if a man wearing a, a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, Why you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges of the evil thoughts? So here's the scenario. A man wearing a gold ring, or literally a gold-fingered man. It's the only time that phrase is used. A gold-fingered man. So it's not just one gold ring. In the ancient world, uh, the elite in Roman times wore many gold rings. So here's this guy, he comes into the assembly and his, his fingers are covered in gold rings. He's got diamonds everywhere. It reminds me of that Paul Simon song from Graceland. Diamonds on the soles of your feet. Diamonds everywhere. Gold rings. It's of course a symbol of power and wealth comes into your assembly. What does James have in mind? The word assembly is literally the word synagogue. It's one of the indicators that in the book of James, James is probably writing to Jewish Christians. They have become Christians, but they're still meeting together, and in their mind they're meeting in the synagogue, the gathering. But it's a particular kind of gathering, as we shall see, not just the general worship gathering. They come into the synagogue. There's this, this gold-ringed man. And he's got fine clothing. Uh, th- that doesn't just mean nice clothing. It means shining clothing. Impressive clothing. He's, he's wearing an Armani suit. He's uh, got his suit from Savile Row in London. He's got the tailor-made Italian suit. He's got those jeans on that you practically have to mortgage your house to afford. And boy, does he look good. And at the same time, a poor man comes in. The word poor there doesn't just mean lower class, a little less money in the bank. It has the idea of someone bending to beg. It's an impoverished man, a beggar. And when it says he's wearing shabby clothing, I, I don't know what you think of when you think of shabby clothing. Perhaps you, you know, it's like we all have some clothing that's a bit more shabby than others. But it means dirty clothing, filthy clothing. He's in rags. He's an impoverished man in rags. There's the contrast. The gold-ringed man with his Armani suit and the impoverished beggar. And they both come into the assembly. And if you pay attention to one that wears the fine clothing, you say, you sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you, you, you stand over there. You, you sit at my feet or literally under my feet, like in a low position. You, you sit right down there under my feet. Now, the assembly is almost certainly an assembly for making a, a judgment. You remember it says in the next verse, you've become judges with evil hearts. This is a religious gathering. 
and there's some kind of complaint. And the rich guy comes in, and you're biased to the man with wealth and power. The poor guy comes in, he hasn't got a chance. You sit down at my feet. There's a medieval rabbi called Maimonides uh, from Spain, about the 12th century. And Maimonides describes how in the Jewish constitution, when there was a law court, that the rich should not be given a good seat and the poor should not be made to stand or sit on the floor, but both alike should stand or sit. This is the scenario. On the Old Testament, Deuteronomy chapter 1, when Moses is instructing the judges how to behave, he says, you shall not show partiality, being biased to the rich and against the poor. Or again in Leviticus 19, when uh, Moses is describing how we should love our neighbor, he he says, you shall not show partiality, deferring to the rich. It's a judgment of a complaint in religious circles. Brother against brother, and the leaders must make a decision. The church must make a decision. And what James is saying is when you make distinctions among yourselves, you become judges with evil thoughts. That is, the judgment in the end comes out of the heart, as Jesus teaches. Our evil thoughts come out of our heart, out of our mind. So there's the principle. You're losing sight of the Lord of glory. Here's the scenario. Rich guy, poor guy, you're preferring the rich guy. Don't do that, James says. Why? Verses 5 to 7 He explains why. And basically what he says there is the reason why is because God does not show partiality. Listen, my beloved brothers, he's going to correct them. And when we're correcting someone, it's good to remind you them that you love them. Listen, my beloved brothers, he loves them. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which he has promised to those who love him? God does not show partiality to the rich. Don't you remember what Jesus taught? Blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. That doesn't mean that everyone who's poor is going to heaven any more than any, everyone who's rich is going to heaven. But the spiritual poor Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And to be saved at all, you have to realize that you are poor. And you come to Christ also as a beggar asking for salvation. God does not show partiality. But you have dishonored the poor man. The one that Jesus has saved, you are rejecting. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? As we've seen earlier, it's perfectly possible to be rich and godly. Abraham was a very rich man. But those who are against the Christian faith and also have money and power, those are the ones who cause trouble to the Christian faith because it requires money to launch a lawsuit Why are you being biased to money? Aren't the rich the ones who are causing you trouble? The powerful? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? Blaspheme, that means speak against the name by which you are called. 
So James saying, don't do it. And here's why, because God doesn't show partiality. But of course, the pushback is, is it really that big a deal? Don't we need to curry favor with the rich and the powerful? Don't we need their resources? Shouldn't we be a little bit biased towards them? Does it really matter? And so then James here will explain what happens if you do show partiality. And this is from verses 8 to 13. And again, he begins with the principle, verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Now note this. The principle comes according to the scripture. James does not say according to tradition. James does not say according to what the church teaches. James says according to the scripture. And this, of course, is a quotation from the Bible, the Old Testament. You shall love your neighbor as yourself, Leviticus 19. But James also calls this quotation the royal law because Jesus himself, the king, when he was asked to summarize the law, used this verse to summarize it. What is the summary of the law? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Therefore, says James, the brother of Jesus. This is now the royal law. And the scripture, Old and New Testament, teaches this. And of course, what that means is, in the same way that we should not be biased against the poor, we should not be biased against the rich. Love your neighbor as yourself, whether he's rich or poor. You can have a kind of inverse snobbery. A jealousy of the rich. Well, the Bible's not for that. Love your neighbor as yourself, whoever he or she may be. There's the principle. But... James is saying, what happens if you do show partiality? Verse 9. But if you show partiality, remember partiality, accepting according to the face, biased according to external appearances, and in particular here, the money and power of of the rich. If you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. That's what happens if you do. To have a bias towards the wealthy, particularly in a, in a, in a situation whereby you're making a decision between a case that's been brought by a poor man and a rich man, and then as that applies in the community and in society, if you're biased against the poor, it has huge ramifications. You know, I think of 2008, the, the Great Recession, when the banks were collapsing everywhere. And surely someone should be held to account. And then we all watched as those multi-millionaires were pensioned off with multi-million dollar golden handshakes when they'd been responsible. I remember watching that on news and thinking, 
there are going to be ramifications for that. Boy, have there been. You're breaking the law. You're convicted by the law as a transgressor, against the law, over the line, that means. And you say, well, oh, come on, it's, it's not that big a deal. It's not like I'm, you know, doing anything really wrong. Ah, says James, verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all, of all of it. Here's a great principle of biblical ethics and of of the teaching of the Bible about the law. The law is a whole unit. The, The law is not just a collection of rules, do's and don'ts. The law is a whole unit, why? Because the law is an expression of a person. It's an expression of who God is. Be holy, therefore. I am holy, therefore you be holy. It's not just a list of rules. It's a description of God's character. And therefore what he wants of his people. If you break it at one point, you've broken the whole thing. Look at it like this. It's a bit like the, the law is like a, a glass ornament. And you just break it a little bit and it shatters on the ground. Or if, if that image doesn't help you, the law is like a, a test where you've got to get 100% to pass. You might get 50%, you might get 20%, you might get 95%, but if you don't get 100%, you don't, you don't pass. You fail. I fail. You've broken the whole thing. Or if that image doesn't help, think of a glass of water, pure and perfect, and you just put one little drop of ink in it. The whole thing is tarnished. One little drop of poison. The whole thing is poisoned. The law is is a chasm between us and God. And you you might be able to jump halfway across the chasm. You might get three quarters, three-fourths of the way across the chasm. But if you don't get to the other side, you still fall into the chasm. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. For, says James, he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you've become a transgressor of the law, of course. And we should remember Jesus' teaching about the law. That to look at a woman or man with lust in your eyes is to commit adultery with her in your heart or him in your heart. To hate your brother is to commit murder in your heart. You may not have done that, but you've done this. What what should I do then, James? I'm glad you asked me that, says James. So he gives the solution, verses 12 and 13. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Now, James, when he talks about the law of liberty and he 
used that phrase a little earlier in, in chapter one as well. He means the gospel, what we would call the gospel. So the law is fulfilled in Christ, and in Christ we are enabled to keep the law, to become more and more gradually by his spirit like Jesus, like what God wants us to be. And the law now, the gospel then, is now a law of liberty. And we who are Christians need to remember that we will be judged under the law of liberty. If we're a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus genuinely and completely, you will have no condemnation. Therefore, says Paul, there is now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. But there is a judgment. And one day, Christians, yes, will stand before the judgment throne of God and be given an assessment of how we have used our lives. And Paul uh, teaches on this. He says, uh, there's only one foundation. No one else can lay another foundation, but we should build on it with, with gold and costly jewels. That is, with, with care for the gospel, care for the poor, active faith in Jesus. But if we only build on it with straw, we'll be saved. But our work will be burnt up. It won't count for anything. There will be a judgment. It matters how you live as a Christian. God will, bring, will judge how you, live, how you live. You're not under condemnation. But there is a judgment to come for Christians. So speak and so act. Remember that judgment day, Christians, when you think of the poor. And then verse 13, perhaps one of the most somber phrases in the Bible. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. It's a key principle of the gospel. Uh, Jesus teaches we must forgive or we will not be forgiven. Why? Because a forgiven person has been transformed by the Spirit and therefore they want to forgive. Or Jesus' parable of the unmerciful servant, the servant who had such huge debt before the king. He goes and pleads with the king, king, save me, save me from this debt. And the king forgives his debt. And then the unmerciful servant goes and finds another servant who owes him practically nothing, a very small amount, and he will not forgive the other servant but throws him into jail. And Jesus says, that unmerciful servant, well, he will be thrown into jail too. No, he, he will not receive mercy. Judgment without mercy. James is talking about hell. Hell is real. It is a place of judgment without mercy. Unending. You remember the parable Jesus told of Lazarus? thrown into hell I pleaded let me out not possible go and send someone to my family surely if, 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 if someone comes back from the dead they'll listen to them and, Jesus, and God says to him if they will not listen to the law and the prophets they will not even listen if someone comes back from the dead meaning they will not listen even after the resurrection of Jesus 
judgment without mercy, unending. And what James is saying by reminding us not only of the judgment that we will receive as Christians, no condemnation, but a judgment, an assessment of how we lived our lives. Therefore, it matters how we live every single day for the glory, the glory of Jesus. It matters. Not only that, but if we have no mercy on the poor, what it shows is we haven't really received mercy ourselves. And we're at risk of hell. What do I do about that? James concludes, mercy triumphs over judgment. (laughs) Receive mercy. Receive Jesus. Ask him to transform your heart that you might be a mercy giver as he has given mercy to you. As you look back through church history, you can see how this pattern of the gospel, when it comes with power, transforms how people relate, rich and poor, are brought together in love. And you can see how when that gospel is not powerfully impacted in society, how there is increasing factionalism, division, and hate. Historians have often asked why it was that the social conditions in 18th century France led to a bloody and vicious revolution with thousands of people killed at the hands of Madame Guillotine. And at the same time in England, where the social situation was not that dissimilar, with the rich lording it over the poor, there was not a bloody revolution. And the answer, I believe, you would find if you could go back in time and stand next to those thousands of miners, people who mined coal, standing in the rain, next to the aristocrats and the rich, listening as Wesley and Whitfield preach the gospel next to each other with tears running down their face receiving mercy for mercy triumphs over judgment oh Lord God we pray it would do that for us here this morning and We pray, Lord, that we as a church should be a church that receives mercy and therefore gives mercy. We pray, Lord, that we would not show partiality, but we would love our neighbor as ourselves. Our Father, we pray that will be true for 
the society in which we live, we are all aware of the deep divisions that exist between rich and poor, privileged and underprivileged right now in America. And we pray, Lord, in your mercy, would you rise up a new season of revival and gospel power that rich and poor alike would bow before you, the King of glory. And Lord, I pray for those here this morning who perhaps are thinking about how they spend their lives. They're Christians, but they realize they're wasting their life. And that you, Lord, will judge how they live their days. I pray, Lord, that you would cause them to have a new resolution to live for you every single day. And Lord, I pray specifically for those who have not yet received mercy. Oh Lord, soften their hearts. Cause them to ask you for mercy. And would you have mercy upon them and upon us all. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.